0: The Humanitarian Hub podcast, the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at SOAS and beyond.
1: Hello and welcome to the first instalment of the Humanitarian Hub podcast recorded here at SOAS Radio. We're releasing this podcast alongside the Humanitarian Hub blog to highlight the debates, research and current issues surrounding humanitarian work globally. Hopefully it will give insights into the kind of topics that will be covered in SOAS's latest MSc, Humanitarian Action, which is a two-year online master's beginning in October 2019. This is an online degree that engages critically with the history, politics and practice of humanitarian action and also has been developed to meet the needs of people working or hoping to work in international agencies, humanitarian organisations and NGOs. At the core of the course will be groundwork in the humanitarian principles and architecture. It will then look to present the critiques and voices from the Global South whilst dealing with contradictory context for humanitarian work and also looking to explore the politics of security decisions, responsibility to protect, witness and asylum. I've also attached a link to the course overview uh, in the footnotes of this podcast alongside a link to our new blog, The Humanitarian Hub, which produces a wide range of articles, podcasts, uh, blog posts, all exploring the kinds of things you'll be talking about on the course and the humanitarian sector in broader detail. Uh, And it's also worth checking us out on Twitter at SOAS underscore HH or just by searching Humanitarian Hub uh, through Twitter or Google. So without any further ado, it's time to introduce my first guest who I spoke to this week, uh, who is Dr. Suda Pereira. Now, Dr. Pereira is currently a senior teaching fellow in conflict and migration at SOAS. She has a wide and varied range of experience. She's been working extensively as a researcher and advisor in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, She's also advised a number of policy actors on conflict and security, primarily in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, uh, which I'll be talking to her about today. And She's also advised government agencies, international organisations such as the United Nations, OECD and World Bank Group and she's also carried out research with the Department for International Development on the Syrian refugee crisis in Jordan and Lebanon and on transformational change in sub-Saharan Africa. She's published a wide variety of research articles primarily focused on knowledge production in conflict-affected states, uh, state building and post-conflict reconstruction and reconciliation and today we were talking about her latest article which explores the research she did whilst in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, between 2013 and 2015. Uh, And she was exploring the differences between new modes of data gathering that have been coming into the fore more recently against the kind of classic idea of ethnographic research on the ground talking to people. And so her latest article which we discuss in depth, talks about the kinds of challenges you face whilst taking part in research on the ground, and also looks to explore a bit more about how locals see humanitarians working in difficult contexts. And Suda refers to the kind of bunkerization of humanitarian actors uh, into what she calls humanitarian hubs, uh, which is slightly different from our humanitarian hub. But uh, we discuss in depth the nature of humanitarianism in that context and specifically the very interesting but also highly complex context that is the DRC. Dr Pereira also has her own podcast. Uh, I'll also leave a link to that podcast in the footnotes uh, of this one too. But without any further ado, here is the first episode of the Humanitarian Hub podcast with Dr Suda Pereira. Hi. Hello Dr Suda Pereira. Hi. So First of all, could you just give us a brief overview of your article and and what it's about?
0: Yeah, sure. So the article, to boldly know, uh, looks at the question of conflict knowledge production in conflict-affected states and specifically um, knowledge production on the Eastern DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And what I look at in this particular article is the fact that a lot of humanitarian workers who want to use conflict knowledge um, in the DRC, don't actually operate at the sites where conflict takes place. So they're in the DRC, but they're usually in these kind of humanitarian hubs in towns like Goma, in particular, which is the capital of the North Kivu province. And in order to gather data on conflict zones the places where the actual violence takes place they tend to use remote data gathering so they use technology to gather data Um, they use drones for example to survey armed groups or they use various crowdsourcing methods of getting locals affected by conflict to text in information Um, and this is seen as a good thing because it allows people to gather data in areas that are deemed too dangerous to go. And the World Bank and various other people have got very excited about the potential of technology and crowdsourcing. But in my article, I tried to show that we shouldn't get too excited because actually, if we unpick how that, crowdsourcing takes place and the kind of knowledge that's produced it's quite problematic and in the article I talk about issues of trust issues of who gets to speak when you use remote data gathering and how that might affect what we know about conflict and in a turn how that might affect humanitarian responses to it.
1: And you were talking there about drones and the use of, of crowdsourcing. Could you maybe talk a bit more about how these things work in the kind of the mechanics of, of the new technologies?
0: Yeah, so what you should probably know about the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo in particular, but um more widely in the DRC, is that the actual physical infrastructure of getting about is quite difficult. So there's a lot of places where it's very difficult to access there by roads because the roads purely don't exist. Um, I myself have been traveling around um, the Eastern Congo and I've got stuck, for example, in um, mudslides and roadblocks and various things where the rain has come and washed the road away and vehicles have got stuck. And sometimes to get to places you either need a helicopter or you need um, to walk for several days, neither of which are um, ideal for a lot of people. In addition to that, there is also this concern about security, you know, more than 80 different armed groups operate in the Congo. There's other issues of kind of petty criminality. People are quite scared to travel around the Congo. And because of these problems of inaccessibility, as I call it, both security and the physical infrastructure, technology has been used to try and access these places that are otherwise difficult to reach. So I talked earlier about drones, um, they're actually um, called unmanned aerial vehicles, um, and they're used in a variety of contexts Um, they're used to survey the areas where armed groups are operating sort of taking pictures and and mapping where those armed groups are they're used to see where populations are in need of humanitarian assistance Um, they're used to gather all kinds of data about populations etc and that's generally from taking pictures from above of what's going on on the ground With the crowdsourcing, it's slightly different because despite the poor physical infrastructure, actually what is quite well developed or at least relatively well developed in the Congo is the use of mobile phone and internet technology, particularly with the kind of advent of solar power um, for um, charging phones, etc. A a number of people have access to phones. Um, The internet is relatively widespread and there's also a thing called the phony which is a kind of radio that most villagers have where they can communicate by satellite radio so various humanitarian actors have been using these technologies to try and speak to um, populations under armed group control who are in otherwise inaccessible areas. And these are the kinds of things that may fall under the realm of crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing, as I talk about it, could be something quite basic. So it could be getting someone to text, simple um, text message answer to something, or it could be something where they have an app and they actually respond on an app to a much more sophisticated form of data gathering. Or, and more commonly, it's the use of social media, so reaching out via Facebook, Twitter, uh,
1: WhatsApp. So you've you've spoken a bit about the the challenges you faced whilst working in the DRC. Am I right in thinking you were there between kind of 2013 and 2015?
0: Yes, for this piece of work, that's, yeah.
1: And so you, you spoke all, uh, about the kind of geographic pr- problems and the kind of infrastructure problems and also security. But you know, I'd be interested to hear more about the kind of challenges that you faced on the ground in that quite conflict prone and complex environment.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting one, because I think certainly when I was getting through the ethics process for this, the sense of insecurity gets magnified through what I call a kind of media aid narrative. And part of that problem is that actually a lot of people who operate on the ground stay in these bunkers. And I talk about these kind of bunkerized zones in in the article where they don't actually see what's going on outside. And as a result, they tend to think it's much more dangerous. Than it is um, particularly when security directives tell them it's too dangerous to go outside that being said there is obviously a, a level of violence and a level of criminality and it's actually the reporting of that that it exacerbates that kind of tendency to think that the um, country more you know outside of the bunker is insecure my own personal experience and i i should add that there was also an element of luck. So I have heard stories of people being more insecure. Um, I myself have also uh, lost a, a friend who um, was killed. This was an extremely shocking event, which might also be an indicator of how rare something like this is. But outside of that, it's not actually as dangerous as you may be led to believe. There is a a thing where you have to be sensitive to the local context and you have to respect local context. And I think there have been a tendency, particularly among UN actors, but also NGOs, to be quite um, aggressive in their approach to Going out into other contexts. And as a result, they've been remet with aggression. And generally, people are quite suspicious of outside interveners. So, as someone not intervening, my own personal experience has been one of relative safety. But certainly, you can see how humanitarians feel threatened
1: in that space. And so, to pick up on that, this idea of the bunkerization and people being removed from where the work they're doing, especially obviously in the more in the humanitarian side, do you feel that this growth in bunkerisation and being removed is actually to the detriment of the humanitarian activity and, and the work of these humanitarians in certain environments?
0: Yeah, I, I suppose the short answer to that is yes. And I think it's to the detriment for a, for a number of reasons. So I think, firstly, there's this question of what humanitarians working in that space actually know about the local dynamics of what is going on around them and who they get their information from. So there's a relatively small group of intermediaries of, of Congolese locals who we might describe as kind of humanitarian entrepreneurs. You know, they work in the humanitarian spaces. They are the people that humanitarian actors speak to and listen to. So we're talking about kind of country staff. And they have a... that They're often... Uh, more elite than a lot of the people that humanitarians are trying to help. They often care extremely deeply about their um, contexts and and their communities, but they also have a kind of material interest in putting forward certain narratives of conflict. And they certainly have a um, material interest in promoting the idea that humanitarian actors need to be there because those humanitarian actors pay their salaries. And it means they don't listen that often to a lot of Congolese voices who are not particularly impressed with the level of humanitarian action that's there, who see this constant humanitarian activity as actually undermining Congolese capacity and not really dealing with the real problems that the Congo has. And a lot of humanitarian actors working in the Congo don't hear those voices because they're in these bunkers where the, in inverted commas, locals they speak to are only a particular kind of local. There's also this question of the way that humanitarian actors are viewed by Congolese locals who don't have anything really to do with them. And the bunker makes kind of hides the work that The humanitarian actors do. So, if you are a local living in Goma who has nothing to do with that humanitarian space, what you actually see are extremely well paid humanitarians in massive houses with, you know, armed guards and cooks and various other sort of domestics driving in these kind of fancy four by fours to a compound and going into that compound to work, but they have no sense of what that work is, and they assume that it's actually nothing. And then what they do is they see them coming out at the evenings and weekends, going to extremely expensive bars, drinking and partying a lot, and going home. So for them, the only thing humanitarians are doing in the Congo is partying on aid money that they think is meant for them. So it's to the detriment of the amount of trust that people have in what humanitarian actors are doing as well.
1: And to go a bit, uh, I suppose, back to your article. So you you talk about this difference between using these new technologies, primarily the the crowdsourcing and, and getting a large amount of data against, I suppose you could say, more classic research method of going somewhere and and doing more rigorous ethnographic research and you talk about the the use of crowdsourcing as this idea of it kind of being a lot of data but not very good quality and it's uh, casting a very wide net and I think you say that they're big but thin amounts of data and then on the other hand I suppose the ethnographic side it's a lot better in terms of its quality, but you can't really gain as much. But I'd be interested to think more about that ethnographic research. And maybe if there are any issues you found whilst conducting that, as opposed to the crowdsourcing, I know, once you're going out and speaking to people, there's that you were talking about this incentive structure of how you get people to come and speak to you. But I'd be interested to know if you actually found difficulties in the ethnographic stuff and, and whether that actually trumped the, the difficulties and the problems with crowdsourcing.
0: Yeah, so The reason I started this crowdsourcing project in the first place is because I did encounter a number of problems with the ethnographic research. So there are, of course, problems of who's willing to talk to you, who's willing to let you in, and also there was a language barrier. I myself work with a Congolese research associate in both North Kivu and a a different Congolese research associate in South Kivu, and they were instrumental in finding people who would talk to me and spend time with me but they were also instrumental obviously in translating in in the various languages that we were conducting um, research into and to be honest if I didn't have them and I didn't have such a great working relationship with them and trust in them I would have really struggled and on top of the kind of actual production of the research which we co-produced together there was this question of the security you know they knew the context and they knew if I was going out to to see an armed group on a particular day, who to speak to, whether that was a good day to go and see the armed group to get all the clearances that I needed. So there's kind of practical logistical elements of the ethnographic research that were were problematic. There was also the question of who I could talk to given that physical inaccessibility that I talked about earlier. I had to focus only on a relatively small number of armed groups that were in reasonable commutable distance from where I was based in Goma and in Bukavu. And actually given the inaccessibility of the roads even around that area, I actually struggled to see that many armed groups. So I went to a a, town, uh, a, a province, an area called Rutsuru, which was about 70 kilometres away. And it took me close to four hours each way to get there because I had to go by motorbike and then parts of it I had to walk. Given how long it took me to get move those 70 kilometres, getting further out to the places that were further away where actually a lot more armed groups operate was impossible. There was a group that I wanted to speak to called the who had done um, this quite incredible thing of driving out a much more... On paper, at least, potent armed group called the FDLR in in a uh, province called Shabunda, and I was unable to get to Shibunda. So what ended up happening is I ended up speaking to some members of that armed group who happened to be travelling from Shibunda to Bukavu. And while they were there, I spoke to them. But actually getting out to do ethnographic research with this group was not possible. So that's why I started the crowdsourcing project to begin with, as a kind of attempt to work around that I would still stand by the fact that I think where possible, the ethnographic research is much better. If I'm honest, the actual usable data that came out of the crowdsourcing um, project beyond the critiques that I've written about was limited. And it was limited because people didn't trust me when they didn't know me to answer the questions. People didn't understand the logic behind the project I was doing. And I didn't have the time to sit down talk with them, get to know them, explain my background. What's really interesting about conducting ethnographic research in the Congo is actually, you know, the interview that I, the the kind of quotes come from is one thing, but people want to know who I am. People really cared about how come i was coming from the uk and they see that as london but my name you know i wasn't in- obviously visually british to them but they asked about the colonial history of sri lanka which is where i'm from because they care about the shared experience of feeling colonized they um wanted to know about for example my marital status because these are things that personalize you to them and get them to trust you and that can't be done remotely or it certainly couldn't be done in the crowdsourcing platforms that I was using. So the trust and the rich data that comes out of doing ethnographic research, from actually connecting with people, is something that's not easy to quantify, but does produce quite important um, elements of your research.
1: Obviously, this article focuses on your kind of research methods um, and gives a really interesting uh, dichotomy between these different uh, two different types. But what would be really interesting, I think, was if you could talk a bit about your work in the DRC in a slightly wider context and what was in terms of peace building and, and the um, violence and conflict going on in, in the regions.
0: Yeah, so this um, actual article came out of a much wider project that was looking at the question of why, despite the incredibly high levels of resources that have gone into peace building in the DRC, has there been no real significant progress in building a positive peace? So just to kind of put in context what I'm talking about, the UN intervention in the DRC is the longest active UN peacekeeping mission in the country, um, in in the UN's history, so it's been there since 1999. It was there originally as MONUC, and it changed its name to MINUSCO in 2010 to include a kind of stabilization element um, to its mission. Its annual operating budget regularly um, um, exceeds two billion US dollars a year. There are more than 22,000 personnel deployed there. Him every year. So it's a huge mission, and the argument that people don't care about the DRC just doesn't bear out if we look at the data of how much money goes into the country and how many peacekeepers are deployed there. But clearly, there is a question about what they're keeping in terms of peace. We see high levels of violence. I, I spoke earlier about having more than 80 different armed groups operating in the Eastern Congo n- right now, and that's more armed groups than there were during the Second Congo War, which is the the war that preceded this, in inverted commas, post-conflict period. We have uh, democratic crises, we have governance crises, it still rates very low down on the human, uh, Human Development Index. So what is this mission doing? And really what this mission is doing is averting what they feel would be a series of humanitarian crises and a kind of conflict containment. It's stopping the conflict becoming a full-blown civil war and having the levels of death that you had in the Second Congo War. But there's still high levels of violence. So that's where this project comes out of. And I'm interested in what could peacekeepers be doing better? And what are peacekeepers just not get understanding right now? Because Congolese people have been critical, highly critical of this peacekeeping intervention. But for some reason, their voices aren't being heard or it's not being articulated in a way that peacekeepers are understanding. So the idea of the project was to say, okay, I'm going to believe in the sincerity of why peacekeepers are there. Because one of the arguments that Congolese people often put forward is that the UN doesn't actually want peace in the Congo. I'm going to say maybe the UN does want peace in the Congo, but what can be done to actually bring about peace in the Congo and what is it you're not doing? So that's kind of the um, understanding behind the project. And I think although I say I believe in the sincerity of the UN wanting peace in the Congo, and I, I, I essentially do, I think there comes a point where after 20 years of not doing your job well to keep doing the same thing there is a level of not actually prioritizing peace in the Congo that is there and it is a time to actually listen to what can be done to change so my research looks at how can change happen
1: just finally I think how personally do you think change can happen and and in what ways could things be improved both in a maybe a potentially peacekeeping environment but also in terms of the large humanitarian work that goes on there
0: there's been a tendency in the Congo to think that you have to avert the humanitarian crises first and that while there are humanitarian crises unfolding you must focus on these short-term fixes and development will come second so the long-term fixes the problems that there is really no um, well-developed economy to generate livelihood alternatives to joining armed groups for example. The problem that there is a lack of physical infrastructure, the problem that there is poor education systems in place and that this means that it's quite hard for a middle class to rise up, that there are um, poor medical infrastructure as well. All these kind of infrastructures of development that you need are not being prioritised because people are focusing on humanitarian assistance of handing out food packages and all these kinds of things because they think, you know, if they don't, then a famine will happen, people will starve to death. But they're not really asking the questions of why in a country that is so abundantly fertile, uh, why are they handing out World Food Programme parcels to farmers for example and the reason is because of the lack of security because people are being driven from their land and can't tend to it But that security comes from those lack of development issues, so those livelihood issues, so there's a circular issue here. And I'm saying that maybe we actually do need to build on that long-term development alongside those short-term fixes and actually prioritise some of that long-term livelihoods building, for example, infrastructure building, because while that's not there, you will just have crisis after crisis, and I'll still be saying this in another 20 years' time. So one of the things that i think will make really positive change in the congo is actually focusing on those long-term development initiatives now and not saying we'll do that once we've established security because you're not going to establish security without long-term
1: development dr suda thank you so much for joining us today
0: thank you very much for having me the humanitarian hub podcast the place for the latest trends in humanitarianism at soas and beyond